0: welcome back to the show. Today we are speaking with Brian Gorman and Brian is a transformation coach. He brings decades of experiencing, studying, and guiding others through the human change journey. As a transformation coach, his starting point is to work with his clients as they answer the question, what makes your heart sing? And this phrase comes up so many times during this episode. And I want you to dive in and listen and ask yourself that question. What makes your heart sing? Because when you are tuning back into that, then you will continue to like light up and create opportunities and create possibilities as well as show others what is possible. So together, then Brian and his clients can prepare, plan, and take the journey as the client lives into their passion. Brian's work engages what Joseph Campbell referred to as the hero's journey, as well as a very deep understanding of the psychological and the neuroscience of change and the power of story, which is everything that this show is about. There's a lot of detail in this episode, and I know you're going to take something away from it. But when you hear his backstory and you hear what he has done and what has led him into this journey of change, as he says so beautifully, the catalyst keeps changing, but the story is there. The change is there. The experience is there. And we're all living this over and over again. So if you are in a space of wanting to learn how to live into your passion, but not just this, even deeper understanding what your anchors are, what's holding you back, what your limiting beliefs are, how your brain works, how you see experiences, and what's blocking you from actually living into your passion, this is an incredible episode for you to tune into. Welcome to the show today, Brian. I'm so thrilled to have you here and to have this conversation.
1: Marsha, I am very happy to be here and share my story with you.
0: Well, and as we already said, there's a lot of different parts to your story. So I know one of the first things, like you, one of the your titles is like a transformational coach, but hum, human change journey. Can you just tell listeners what is a human change journey?
1: So it's what we live all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, to give it more context, uh, my professional background. Um, is over five decades in intentionally engaging change, not only for myself but at at the organizational and at at the social levels, as well as working with individual clients. Mm-hmm. And for a lot of years, I changed and worked in quote or I I trained and worked in quote organizational change management. One of the things that I learned along the way is that's a misnomer. Organizations don't change. People change. And as I came to understand that more and more, I came to realize that um, Joseph Campbell got it right. Mm -hmm. That that while we approach every change, and I'm really quoting or virtually quoting him here, uh, as we approach every change as if it's unique and unpredictable, it's not. Mm -hmm. We take the same change journey over and over and over again. So, whether I'm coaching one client to go through transformation or working with the leaders of a 10,000 employee division to change the culture in their organization, it's the same journey.
0: Mm, Okay. So, we're going to dive into this because, well, first off, I love Joseph Campbell. And I mean, this is the hero's journey, right? And as we go through this hero's journey, it's so funny because we think as humans, you know, if I get through this challenge, then will be clear. And it's like, it's like you literally just maybe get over the hump and then in comes the next one. It's like, what? But it is, if we can look back on our lives, we can see those challenges over and over that continue to happen. What led you into this work? What called you into this work? And this can maybe ties back into your backstory, but what led you in this direction?
1: Uh, uh, so now we have to go all the way back to 1967. I was a freshman at Syracuse University. I was an introvert, I was an Eagle Scout, and I had promised myself that I would change my relationship with others from from that of an introvert. So I decided to join a fraternity. Mm -hmm. But as an Eagle Scout, I wasn't going to join one of those wild party fraternities, I joined Alpha Phi Omega, which is the National Service fraternity. Mm And soon after I joined, they asked for volunteers to help form a Boy Scout troop on the nearby Onondaga Indian Reservation. My hand went up, and it didn't take very long working with the adults on the reservation to begin to form the the scout troop and then actually beginning to work with the young boys to learn that the university's portrayal of its mascot, which was at that time a Native American, um, was both xenophobic, or, xenophobic and racist. And that really initiated this drive in me to try to get the university to change its mascot. I I failed, it took the Onondaga Nation another 9-10 years after that to make that happen. But this thing about change got ignited inside of me, and it has been the uh, subliminal thread, if you will, through everything I've done in my life since then.
0: Wow. So that was, and if I even think back into that time frame, so I was born in 1970, and I, I can say that, you know, even in the 70s and early 80s, like, I'm not that racism is gone now. We're not saying that, but the openness to even see things differently was never there. And I know I used to fight and I'm just going to say this in my family and say, like, we can't talk like that. That's not. And I remember even as a kid saying that and being told like, you're just being too much. It was very normal at that time, which is so awful to say.
1: Absolutely, not just around racism, around race, and and, but around all sorts of difference,
0: Mm -hmm. all sorts of differences. So that was what initiated you into this work on change. What happened after that?
1: Um, I got drafted out of grad school in 1971, the the late 1971, and. uh, ended up enlisting so I could complete the semester. and uh, so I served four years in the Air Force. And to make a long story short, I ended up being a basic training drill sergeant, which is really all about change. It's about how do you take 48 disparate individuals from around the country with with differing levels of education different experience. I mean, we had trainees in 1972, three, four, five, who had never lived with electricity, had never experienced indoor plumbing, Um, and then others who were college graduates. How do you take those disparate individuals and help shape them into um, a fully functioning, uh, supportive of one another team? So I didn't, again, realize it at the time, but there was that change journey that um, I was being a catalyst for. And interestingly, I was not being a catalyst for it in the t- traditional drill sergeant way, um, although that was what was expected of me. But um, at that point, I had my undergraduate degree. I was working on a master's in human relations, um, and and so I brought a very different mindset to how do you help people adapt to circumstances that are very different than what they have grown up to live into?
0: Mm. And so, because so much of your journey has been about change and creating change and facilitating change, is that what has led you into the in your words, as an activist, like really being an activist for change, right? Because we lots of people might want to create change, but stepping in and being an activist who's going to speak out publicly, it, they're two different things.
1: Another part of my story. Um, <clears throat> I grew up in the 50s and 60s. Mm-hmm. I grew up, by the time I was, how many uh, kindergartners do you know who kissed their kindergarten teacher on the first day of school?
0: Yeah, that you wouldn't know that now but yeah that that,
1: that was me. Yeah. yeah, that was me. I grew up very early on knowing that there was something different about me.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, at some point in in my teen years, I recognized that what was one of the things that was different about me besides being an introvert or maybe it drove my introversion was that my attraction was not to the female it was to the male. Mm -hmm. And at that time, I knew that that was a psychological disorder. And so I became closeted, not just to the world around me, but to myself as well. Mm -hmm. Um, I finally came to terms with the fact that either I was going to have to find a way to disconnect with myself fully, or I was going to have to learn how to live into myself fully. about 1981. And um, I realized that disconnecting was not going to work mm-hmm. because I had tried that uh, for 30 years of my life. And, and so I came out in the spring of 1981. Um, the first reports of AIDS were in the summer of 1981. It was known as gay-related immune deficiency. Yeah. And so that was my first spark of activism because um, if anyone knows the history of AIDS, um, it was seen as a gay disease. It was seen as um, God's punishment for homosexuality. Um, It it was not taken seriously as a health issue by the government, by most physicians. Um, People in hospitals uh, were, were put not just in isolation in terms of rooms, but very often meals would be left outside of doors. Um, parents would would absolutely refuse to not just see or care for their children who were dying of this disease, but would literally refuse to even accept the bodies after death. And so that was my first um, round of social activism if you will after my early efforts at the university to change the the mascot
0: the timing of that like i remember i i remember i i know as a teen i remember the timing of that and so when you decided to come out and that was what the culture was like at that time how were you treated personally if i can ask that question
1: sure it's interesting even though the, the whole psychological um definition, if you will, had changed in the 1970s. Being gay was still not widely accepted. And so there were people I did come out to and and people I didn't. Um, I I was really very conscious um when I was visiting any sort of a LGBTQ venue mm-hmm. that I sort of had to sneak in the side door, if you will, um, and, and not be seen walking out, uh, not showing my affection for my partner at the time publicly, uh, all of those kinds of things. So even in, in the mid-1980s, I moved to New York, and at that time in New York City, um, it was illegal dis- discrimination to discriminate in employment, housing, and so forth based on sexual identity. And I went to work for one of the major uh, international, actually global consulting firms. Mm -hmm. And I had one partner who knew my truth. And she made it very clear that if I wanted a future there, uh, I would have to not share my truth with almost anyone else.
0: So then you're back in the position again of deciding, like, do I disconnect from who I am or do I connect to who I am? And what did you do at that time?
1: I stayed pretty disconnected. I lived two separate lives. Mm-hmm. You know, I I lived with my partner and you know, would go to the movies or go out to dinner on the weekend and come in on Monday morning and hear people talking about what they had done with their wives and um mm-hmm. making their homophobic jokes and asking me how I spent my weekend. And I would say either I
0: mm-hmm. you
1: know, removing my partner from the picture or um, a friend of mine and I.
0: Mm-hmm. Wow. That's a, I I don't have an easy phrase or anything to that because I just um it it's to me it breaks my heart because I um I don't feel anybody should feel that level of exclusion of any kind. Um, but I thank you for sharing that with us because I do think that it's also the timing of everything that you're sharing. Like I said, we're not perfect. We're not overly open now, but I always remember that time, and that was very much, yeah, yeah.
1: That was the last time I was in that situation in terms of employment.
0: Okay, um,
1: when I got laid off in 1990, and I got laid off, they were doing a global downsizing at the time, mm-hmm. and I went to work for an AIDS organization, and at, at that point. I made the intentional decision that that was going to be on my resume the rest of my career. And if potential employers were not uh, not comfortable with that, and even in 1990, um, while in fact, the impact of AIDS was much more uh, broad than the g- gay male population, the public perception was still it was a gay disease. Mm-hmm. So. Implicitly by going to work for an AIDS organization, um, there was an an understanding that I was a gay man. Mm
0: -hmm. And how long did you work with that organization? I worked
1: there for five years.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: I went in as deputy director of finance and operations um, at the time, and it was an organization that had been formed to provide permanent housing and support services for homeless people with AIDS. And again, at the time, um, AIDS was still perceived as a gay disease, although it was reaching much more broadly. Mm -hmm. Um, At that time, the transition was just being made with some of the um, medical advances of moving from dying of AIDS to living with AIDS. So it was a time of great social transition, if you will. Um, This was an organization that was founded by a fashion designer um, who just had a passion for helping to address this issue. So when I got there, we had a three and a half million dollars budget, and all of our financial records were being kept on spreadsheets. There was no infrastructure. And so I was brought in, in essence, again, to reverse engineer change, if you would,
0: Mm -hmm.
1: and to create an infrastructure that would support the organization, its service to the delivery and its growth without being, becoming an administrative burden.
0: Wow. So you did that. Like that's, thank you for sharing all of that with us. That is, um, you can just see, it's funny, go back to the hero's journey and everything you just shared, like you can see already how many times you keep repeating and really like in that space of creating change.
1: The catalysts are different.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: The way in which the obstacles surface are different. Mm-hmm. The journey's the same.
0: The journey's the same. It's it's funny because I always refer to like our stories and owning our stories and sharing our stories. And people say, Well, what like what story? Because I've lived so many different ones. And I'm like, but if you actually look back, a lot of the stories we keep repeating, we keep going through, we keep like stepping into this space. And you know, it's it's not a bad or good, it's just recognizing there's patterns that we keep repeating throughout our life. And that's exactly what you're sharing here. So you did this for five years and then
1: so back when I was in the consulting world,
0: mm-hmm.
1: I actually trained in organizational change management. So pretty much 20 years into doing this change thing, I discovered For the first time that there was actually a profession Mm -hmm. and a science behind how we move through change. So, um, I actually came out of that nonprofit role uh, working to establish my own nonprofit. And it was called the AIDS Futures Initiative. It was about uh, helping redefine America's response to AIDS, and uh, had a, a couple of donors, but really spent mostly what I had been able to save over my career um, in trying to get that up and running. And unfortunately, at that point, uh, donors, philanthropic organizations, were either interested in direct research, uh, direct service, or medical research. Nobody really wanted to talk about the fact that AIDS was going to be a part of our social and economic fabric for decades to come. One of the people who did invest and actually sat on the board was the gentleman who had uh, introduced me to the profession of change management. So I went to work for him.
0: Wow. that's So then you continued that work for, yeah, a number of years.
1: The work for him through twenty. Uh, 2000, or I'm sorry, 1999, uh, 2000, I went to work for another uh, international consulting firm, specifically as a change management practitioner. Um, and then back to the original, if you will, uh, person who had trained me in the uh, 2004 era. And did that through 2006. Um, during that time actually was on the team that helped Merck uh, Pharmaceutical go through a global transition, uh, global transformation. Um, my recollection is is that their stock value over the time we were working with them increased by something like close to 100%, if I remember correctly. Um, and eventually, if you've lived in the consulting world or in the um, sales world where you're not just covering a local region you get tired of living in airports and hotels
0: yeah it's uh, my my dad did my dad was in sales and consulting and i mean there's a many many years when we were younger we just didn't see him he was working and he was on planes 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 and it was very yeah i know it's it sounds glamorous sometimes but it's <laughs> it's not no
1: Commuting from New York to Phoenix from Memorial Day through September October is not glorious
0: no, every no. week. No. C-
1: commuting from New York to Chicago and Erie, Erie Pennsylvania all winter long is not glorious.
0: No, no, it's definitely not glorious. it's definitely not glorious. So you continued this work and I I want to um, fast forward a little bit because I want to get to the story about your son. And I would love it if you, wherever you want to share this, because this is also, this is like, I, I would love to know what led you into that direction. And I know you have a TED Talk that I make sure that is included in our show notes. Um, but this is a pretty special story that I think it is. it's it's a very special story. And I would love for you to share that with us.
1: Um, And I don't recall the year off the top of my head, it was about 15 years ago, uh, right before Memorial Day weekend, I got an email. And basically, the email said, I'm a high school sophomore. Now, I'm in New Jersey. The email said, I'm a high school sophomore in Massachusetts, studying photography. Mm -hmm. Our assignment is to write the biography and photograph in the style of our favorite photographer. Uh, I googled the gay photographers, and you're my favorite. May I interview you?
0: Mm.
1: And I had, at that time, I had a photogra- photography website. Uh, I had dabbled in photography uh, professionally without a whole lot of luck. My ego said, of course. Well, I got on the phone with Brandon and I was just blown away. His questions were brilliant, he had done his homework. Mm-hmm. Um, he really knew my work. He knew me. And one of his questions was, how did you come to your photography? So I answered him. And basically, my first partner had uh, made a living working in a photo studio. He was an artist who supported himself by doing photographic retouching. And he, had, his name was David. He tried to teach me how to draw for four or five years and then said maybe you should get a good camera. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I go I did go get a camera and 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 actually studied at the uh, International Center of Photography. Um but anyway I turned this question back to Brandon. And he said it's a way to see a world outside the abuse I experience at home every day and the assaults I suffer at school on a regular
0: basis. And how old was he at the time? He was 15. Okay.
1: And so while my ego had said yes, it was my heart that Mm -hmm. said, you can't just wish him a good grade on this assignment. Mm -mm. And so I offered to stay in touch with him. And um, it was right toward the end of the school year, and and he was heading from uh, sophomore to junior year. Um, Shortly after we we spoke, uh, he was living with his birth mother. and, and had I, don't, I I'm not going into details, no. but had no, no further relationship with his birth father. Um, and his birth mother threw him out for the first time that summer. And so we stayed in touch, um, texting during the day, talking on the phone at night as he um, lived on the streets of Boston, sofa surfing at night, um, and really began to build a strong bond. Um, the next year, his junior year in high school, the assaults became so bad that the school banned him from the school grounds. People can't see your face, Marsha.
0: <laughs> oh wow! People who know me know what my face just did. <laughs> I'm like, it's there's so many broken parts in our school system that I don't even have time to go into. But I just look at it and go. So he was being assaulted, and because of that, like the school decided. For his, yeah, well, that's right? the like. Let's not actually deal with the root of the problem, right? Like, this absolutely, is, and let's absolutely. not have it be our problem, basically. Absolutely. Wow.
1: So, they were sending tutors to the public library, uh, two hours a day. Um, and again, clearly, he had returned, his, his mother had uh, opened her home back up, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, but clearly, she wasn't happy with having him around, and so. Um, I worked with her t- and, and he worked with his tutor so that he would get tutored three weeks a month, and then would spend a week a month with me. And at his mother's request, I helped him with his scholarship applications, his college applications, his college visits, and, and all of those, quote, parenting things. Mm-hmm. And, um, March 7th of his senior year, he texted me. And he said, my mother told me I have three hours to get out of the house. What do I do? And uh, he was texting because he couldn't use family minutes during the day. Mm -hmm. Basically, um, my language, I don't think, was quite this pure. But I said, forget about the rules. Give me a call.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: And um, I, I told him what if he could Get he should take his birth certificate, his Social Security card, his um, health insurance card, his phone, his computer—just um, sort of some key things. Um, and I uh, told him I would arrange for a place for him to stay, and I would rent a car, and I would be up in Massachusetts that evening. And it just came out. Mm-hmm. This this was. It it, it was my heart and my gut talking, it wasn't my head, because I had no idea, (laughs) no idea what I was getting into.
0: Well, no, why would you, right? Like this is like this, No, nobody, you can read any book on parenting that you want, but there's no book that prepares you for it. But then also you're walking in at a teenage level where he's already had a number of challenges. So it's not, that's not an, I mean, I honor what you've done. I do. I just know that it probably was a moment of like, whoa, what have, what have we done? Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. He was 18 at the time. Mm-hmm. Um. And, and again, just three months away from, from graduating. So he and I went into school the next day and met with his guidance counselor. And she said, now, the, the piece I didn't say, his school district was now paying another school district 20 miles away for his senior year. Okay. So basically his guidance counselor not basically his guidance counselor said you need to find a place for him to live in the school district or he can't graduate and it was a very blue collar um town so here i am driving around this blue collar town with the you know for rent uh, newspaper opened up on on the car seat saying i'm from new jersey i'm looking for a place to house a 18 year old high school senior who just got thrown out of his home.
0: Mm-hmm. And like it's, you want something fast and how do I make this happen? And yeah. Uh,
1: yeah. So we found this little studio garden apartment. I mean, it was, you know, about the size of a bathroom, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and furnished it with bed, bath and beyond blow up bed and a card table to replace the bed during the day and a desk and, and, uh, so forth. And when he graduated, he moved down here
0: mm-hmm.
1: to live with me. He had actually uh, gotten accepted to the new school of social research uh, here in New York City mm-hmm. and um, started college that September. Graduated with a 3.9 GPA.
0: 3.9. Uh,
1: 3.9. And uh, over the course of his College career. Uh, I'll never understand this, but the school district he grew up in offered the choice of English or Mandarin during middle school. And so he took four years of Mandarin. He came in second nationally in an essay writing competition in Mandarin. He didn't have a whole lot of English essay writing
0: experience.
1: (laughs) But At the point he was uh, dating someone who was deaf, he had taken what the school was offering uh, in terms of sign language, American sign language. And he went in to talk with the the language department about uh, how he might take more language courses and have the credits transferred. And he was talking about his fluency in language because he is incredibly fluent in languages. And um, he happened to mention Mandarin and the Mandarin teacher or one of the Mandarin teachers was in the office at the time. And she started a conversation with him. And the next thing we knew, he was heading to a uh, summer in session in Shanghai. And at that point we said, if anything happens to him in China, we need to be legally connected. So that was when we made the decision to adopt him.
0: Wow. Wow. So you opened up like so many doors of opportunity for him. Just, I I'm guessing just from even believing in him, like, and that's that piece of, you know, um, and I'm sure that reciprocally it's been, it's it's Like, I can't even imagine. I'm sure it has um, changed both your lives. It always I think it's, it's such a, a beautiful piece to it though, because, you know, here's an example that yes, you can be born with everything. Yes. You can have everything and it can look like it's, you know, smooth and easy and all these things. Um, that doesn't dictate whether you do have like what you create in the rest of your life. And here's a great example for both of you in just looking that you know, we, our life is what we choose to make it and what we choose to do and how we can take our circumstances and do something with them. And yes, that means getting help sometimes. Yes, that means, you know, being able to receive that help sometimes, but what an incredible story.
1: You said something before we started recording that brought up a lesson my grandfather taught me that I want to share now.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, And he taught me when I was, he was teaching me, I was probably less than 10 years old, uh, was teaching me how to play pinochle. And I would get grumpy when I'd get a bad hand. Not ask for the cards to be reshuffled and redelt and all those kinds of things. And grandpa was played by the rules. And I'll never forget. And I don't know that he meant this as a life lesson. He may have. But he said, it's not up to us what cards were dealt. And we can always choose how to play them.
0: It's one of my favorite quotes. It really is. It's actually one that I would anchor and hold on to when I was in the middle of chaos, because we all have moments where we play the victim card, we're angry and frustrated. And I think that's normal. Like it happened. But if we choose to unpack, move in and stay there, then that's our choice. But that... That quote itself was instrumental for me at a time when I really needed it because it was like, okay, I I have tried to change this hand so many times. And no matter what I do, the cards kept coming up the same over and over. And then all of a sudden it was like, you know what? Maybe they're not my cards. They're not my cards to change. Maybe it's not mine to change them. Maybe it's my responsibility for how I can respond to it. So I I resonate with those words. And so often
1: when I'm working with my clients – they say, I don't have a choice. I know. And and we always have choice. But choice isn't always between good and bad. It isn't always between better and best. No. Sometimes choice is between two really sucky options.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I don't mean to laugh at that. But I, I visually had a moment where I remember standing, and my husband and I having a discussion during a really difficult time. And he's like, But where is there a better option? I'm like, there isn't. We have shitty choice A and shitty choice B. We just got to choose one. Like we don't know which one is going to make a difference. And you know what? We're going to make mistakes. But I also think that when it comes to change, and obviously you can answer this better than I can, is how, as humans, how much time do we actually spend thinking about the changes but never actually making change?
1: Change doesn't happen until we act.
0: No, no, but that's like, that's very relatable, right? Like there's a lot of people who just think and they think and they think. And it's interesting because when you really understand the brain, I finished my NLP um, trainers this year. So I've really, it's been very beneficial for me personally, but understanding that literally the last thing you ever want to do is think. Because it's the only thing I have in my brain is made up of my response to everything I've lived up until now. So it's it's only based on those things. I, It could turn out 10,000 times different than what I know, but if I ask myself to think about it, that's only based on my previous experience.
1: It's only based on your cephalic brain. You have two more.
0: Okay, so tell us about this, because I love this stuff. <laughs>
1: So not every neuroscientist uses this language. Mm -hmm. That's number one. Number two is they all agree on the facts. Um, In our hearts are the same motor neurons and sensory neurons as in our heads. In our hearts is the same electrochemical activity as happens up in our heads. In our gut, we have about as many neurons as a cat's brain. And they stretch from the esophagus all the way through the digestive tract. Some neuroscientists will refer to cardiac cluster, gut or enteric cluster. Some will use the terms cardiac brain and enteric brain. They all agree they're there. The cardiac brain is the seat of passion, compassion, and values. Your heart's in it or it's not.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Your gut is the seat of self-protection, courage, and who you are at your core. The heart and gut communicate with the head through the vagus nerve. And the the cellular structure there is such that uh, they estimate about 90% of the communication is upward. So sometimes you have feelings that you can't put words to, sometimes you have feelings that you can put words to. Those words roll up here. But if you listen to your heart, if you listen to your gut as well as your head, now you're thinking with all three brains. I have one client who's on the autism spectrum who literally has conversations. And you'll say, this is not a head decision. Heart, what do you think? Gut, what do you think?
0: I love that. Thank you so much for sharing. Because I I think that, you know, there's this also train of thought that many times when you are thinking of, you know, where do I feel that? A lot of practitioners will say, like, where do you feel that? And you can say, like, I feel that in my heart. That feels heavy. I feel that in my gut and that feels heavy. And it's recognizing that they, they are actual like separate centers that you can feel from. So only relying on your head is not, I don't want to say it's not the right thing to do, but it's not, it's only giving you a piece of the information.
1: Sometimes it's exactly where you should go.
0: Mm-hmm. And sometimes
1: it's the last place to go.
0: Hmm. Wow. Thank you so much for, I love that um, detail and how you explain that because again, so many times humans will sit, we sit in this energy in the space of trying to map out every single scenario of like, how could it work? How could it not work? What does it look like before we decide if change is the right thing to do? And sometimes, and and this is where it gets really interesting with um, change and relationships, because you each have different ways of thinking about things. I'm going to put my husband in the podcast for a second. He's, he's wonderful. He really is. But if you ever need an overanalyzer, he's your guy. Like he will give you every single, sometimes I'm like, can we just make the decision, please? Can we just make, and I am the one that I'm like, Ooh, that feels right. Let's do that. And he's like, well, how are you going to make that work out? And I'm like, I don't know yet, <laughs> I don't know yet. But I After knew- After all, it's,
1: it's just where we're going for dinner here.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it might be that, it might be. we And we've learned and so it's a humor here because sometimes he'll ask, do you want to go do something? Because I'm gonna go look and think about getting this. I'm like, are you actually just gonna go and look and think? Because if you are, just go look and think on your own and I'll come when you're ready to make decisions. And he's like, no, I'm ready to make a decision. I need your opinion. I'm like, okay, hey, good, good, let's go then. And we just have learned, right? And it's mm-hmm. recognizing that- we all have very different ways of making decisions Yeah, yeah. to create that change. Wow. Wow. So you work with clients now. This is like a big, not now, but this is a big part of what you do. And um, your TED Talk. Can you tell us what your TED Talk is called?
1: So my TED Talk is Be the Hero of Your Change. Mm. And um, it, it's on YouTube. Mm. Just uh, search for my name and... TEDx Hartford, Um, it really covers a lot of what we've talked about today. Um, It begins with a question, which is, what makes your heart sing? Because that's where I believe we all should begin each of our change journeys. Given, and again, Marsha, it's not always good versus bad, Mm -hmm. but given the situation that we're in now, what makes your heart sing? How do you take that and live into that, regardless of what the circumstances are? Mm -hmm. Years ago I trained with Judith Glasser, um, who spent decades of her life studying the neuroscience of conversation. and. Judith had pancreatic cancer, stage four pancreatic cancer. She lived with it for years. And she would share with us the markers. Mm -hmm. And every time she was teaching, the level of cancer markers just precipitously dropped. Because sharing what she knew made her heart sink sharing what she knew helped overcome the power was more powerful than the cancer. Ultimately, the cancer did kill her. Mm -hmm. But knowing what makes your heart sing, then learning how to sing along with it. Why shouldn't we all be doing that,
0: Mm -hmm.
1: regardless of the circumstances?
0: No, oh, that's such a great question. Thank you for sharing that um that piece, because that's like actually seeing and hearing a physiological change happening when you're choosing something that you know lights you up. Often I joke a lot of times that like you when you learn how to follow that light, like that light's not for you. Like it actually can you now give it. To others, and you give that permission that others can do the same too. And I mean, that's just really sharing more of who you are and what you are here to do and share and reach that impact. Because holding on to that knowledge, as you explained here, as Judith was sharing there, like holding on to that knowledge, it's not for her, right? It's for her to continue to pay it forward and to share it. So that continues to you know, make her heart sing at the time, but also you're all feeling that and benefiting from that. Absolutely. Wow. Wow. Um, okay. So if we are hearing all of these actual, like physical, physiological, emotional benefits of, you know, going after what makes your heart sing and creating change, then why don't more of us do it?
1: I think a root at I think there are a, a couple of pieces to that. I think there's a, it takes courage.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, it takes risk. It takes overcoming those truths that we live by that aren't really truths. I call them our gremlins. They're I'm too family. old, I'm too young, I'm not smart enough, I'm not rich enough. Um, It's a world of scarcity. Um, One of my gremlins that I have decided I'm just not going to tackle. I can't learn languages. Um, But we all have these limiting beliefs. Mm -hmm. We all get anchored in comfort, even when the situation is uncomfortable. And um, unfortunately, I think one of the best examples of this um, are people who live in abusive households, uh, especially adults who live in abusive households. And as it's, it's not that anybody loves to be abused.
0: Mm-mm.
1: And they know what to expect. Going out into a world that is totally alien to them is even more scary. Yeah. And so it takes courage, it takes support, you know, this, these change journeys, some of them we can take by ourselves. Some of them we have to have, to have others join us, support us, guide us in some cases, whether it's a coach or, or a mentor or a spiritual advisor or um, whatever we need, a coach. It takes letting go of some of those anchors in our lives.
0: And that's your when you refer to the anchors, like that's the limiting beliefs that we're holding on to. As an example, that's one example. That's
1: that's one example. But um, an anchor is anything that provides you a sense of security and control. Um, I use the metaphor because the the city I live in, uh, we could not leave our apartments for our building for two days after Superstorm Sandy. The streets were flooded, Mm -hmm. and um, when we got out. And, and started walking around, there were there, they anchor sailboats in the in the inlet at the north end of the city. And uh, there was one sailboat that was probably somewhere between a quarter half a mile away from where it had been anchored. It was sitting on the railing along the river, still attached to the buoy still attached to the anchor, but the anchor was not strong enough to keep it where it belonged. When I got up to the inlet inlet, There were some sailboats bouncing along like nothing had ever happened, and then there were masts still sticking out of the water. Where the anchor held, the line held, but the connection was too strong for the turbulence. So anchors can be anything. They're very often people, they're very often spiritual or religious beliefs. Um, When I was doing workshops around anchors, after super after COVID hit, um, I had one person who discovered he was a Wall Street lawyer. For the first two weeks after COVID hit, he got nothing done in his home office. Mm-hmm. And then without really thinking about it, one day he put his suit on before he went into his office and he was back in control. For him, that was an anchor.
0: Wow. What a powerful example. I can see that. I actually, that that's just such a different example that I haven't heard before, but I can see it. And it's like, as you say, it's a sense, it's anything that gives us a sense of security or control. And even if that anchor is not something that you want, right, even if, it, if, if you could consciously look at it and say, no, this is not what I want for my life. But knowing what this is, is easier than embracing all this unknown over here. Even if this unknown over here is incredible. Mm-hmm. This is this feels easier. And I'm going to yeah. hold on to this. Yep. Wow. Wow. Seriously. Thank you so much for sharing that. So you've you've explained a little bit about anchors. I just have a couple quick questions for you that I want to when you talk about like the obstacles that people keep reaching, is that the anchors or is that something more?
1: It's something, it's, this is a yes and answer.
0: I like yes and.
1: (laughs) Um, Just as, you know, I referenced Joseph Campbell before, that there is an arc or a path through every change that we take over and over again. The obstacles, there are are a pattern of obstacles Mm -hmm. along that path as well. The first of which is, if we... Aren't crystal clear as to where we're going? How do we know even our first step is in the right direction?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so, for me, for my clients, the way they become crystal clear is starting again with what makes your heart sing, um, and ultimately creating a story from the future about where they want to be, because that's a head, heart, gut story, mm-hmm. and and you know um, the power of story is it actually shapes our, our brain's process story the same as the lived event. Mm-hmm. It doesn't
0: know the difference. It, so, it actually doesn't understand the difference.
1: It doesn't understand the difference. So by having this story from the future, you're building new neural networks that know what it's like to be living in that future. And those, and, and this is my perception. I don't Everything else I've talked about this stuff, you know, there's lots of scientific evidence. I have not seen scientific evidence on this, but I believe it's those neural networks that we build that change our unconscious filters Mm -hmm. and help us find our way through the obstacles because our brain knows what it's like to be on the other side of them. So those are, that. that's sort of where we start. But then as we move forward, um what are those limiting beliefs? What are those stories that we tell ourselves that are going to hold us back? Um, What are the resources that we need in order to move forward? What are the changes in uh, who we're traveling with, how we think, um, what choices we make that we're going to have to make in order to, to move on down this path?
0: There's so, and I want, um, there's so much content in everything that you're sharing and I love it. I love the, the detail in it. So if a person is listening to this right now and says, okay, that's great. But now that sounds really big and scary. What, what can I do first?
1: So yes, it is big and scary. If you're looking to make a big change, um, what you need to do first, really, I think, is listen to yourself. Listen to yourself from a place of calm. How important is that change to make? Mm-hmm. You know, when I talk about the story from the future, I mean, I've, I've had clients who, you know, they know the office building they want to buy. They know how they want to furnish it. They know the signage they're going to put up. Their story from the future is laden with detail. Then I have one client who said, all I can tell you right now is these are the kinds of people I want to be working with. Mm -hmm. This is how I want to feel at the end of the day. And I'm going to be known for my signature red blazer. That was all the details she needed. To get started.
0: Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for sharing that. I love that. Something that um, we have new said on the show, and I just wanted to share. In one sense, is that I, I started scripting, and I call I call it scripting, but I would just I created a new story of what my life would look like, and I did it in. I started probably in 2015 when it was a really ugly time for us. Like there was very little hope very little light. And I, I thought I have absolutely nothing to lose. I read about this concept and I'm like, well, (laughs) I know where I am kind of sucks. Let's just see what I can do. And I started scripting and over the last like seven, eight years of doing this exercise for me, it's, I've learned even more about how the brain works now. So I actually even understand the science of how it works, but like our brain doesn't understand time and it doesn't understand like difference and experience. It's like, how real can you make that now? And how can you bring emotion into it? Because it's like, you're pulling that future to you now so that your body, which is where our emotions live, is in our is in our body, is how then can we pull that to here and make that a reality? So scripting is something I've gone back to on a regular basis, but that's a, just literally changing the story. Sometimes it has a tremendous amount of detail sometimes it doesn't. Um, But for me personally, I have found it very beneficial to focus on how do I want to feel? How do I want to feel? And it's not about, you know, X number of clients and sales of this. I've tried all of those ways and I think different things work for different people. But for me, when I can focus on the emotions of how I want to feel, how I want to serve, what I want to be doing, that is when the story starts to change. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: So it's interesting how the change and the story like melded together in this episode. I love it. I love it. Honestly, I love the work that you do. And I love how you shared so much of your personal story with us today, as well as so much context about changing and creating change. I want to ask you um, two questions. You talk about like living into your passion. Is that can you explain what that means? Or is that relating to what your heart sings?
1: It, it, it relates to what makes your heart sing. Before we go there, um, two things that are important about that story. One, write it in your own language. Mm-hmm. And that may not be words. You know, I've had clients do paintings and sculptures and choreograph, dance, and write music. Yeah. Um, Write that story in your language. You may have to translate it into words for others to understand when and if that's appropriate. The other thing is clients will say, but I can't predict the future. This is not about predicting the future. It's very much what you're saying, Marsha. It's about creating the future. And you're the author. You can always edit the story. Now, when COVID hit, I had to edit my story because it certainly disrupted the flow that I had been in. So, yeah, living into your passion is about what makes your heart sing
0: mm-hmm.
1: and finding the way in which to live into that, whatever that might be.
0: Mm, thank you so much for sharing that. And I mean, for anybody who's listening, please know, I 100% agree. You can edit that story anytime. Anytime. It can edit and it's funny because I don't know if this is part social media. I'm not looking to blame. I'm just curious. Is it our some of our younger generation, I mean, my kids are twenty four and twenty five, And there's this feeling sometimes that if I don't have it figured out by this age, then I'm really failing. And I had to have this really frank conversation with my one son. I'm like, But who told you that? Because that didn't come from us. Like that's, I guarantee you it didn't. I mean, my COVID hit and my job was gone and I had to start over from scratch at 50. And it was like, we don't have time to sit and think about it. We just have to figure it out. But where did that come from? And this is underlying belief that it's like, I, I have to have it figured out by this time. And I'm like, but then you're not even open for anything to change. And everything is going to change. Like, it changes all the time. That's the whole point.
1: I was in my late 30s before I realized change was the thread in everything I was doing. So I went from drill sergeant to creating a living learning center in, in, in a university to re-energizing a uh, more of an annual giving program to um, being a... Uh, management consultant my father would often say when are you going to get a real job and stick with it um it wasn't until my late 30s that i knew change was the common thread Mm -hmm. and then i was in my 60s my early 60s when i began to train as a coach and the first day i began training it was like this is what i've been preparing my whole life for this is a journey Mm -hmm. there are lots of little journeys and and disruptive journeys and big journeys along the way. And it's a journey.
0: It sure is. I, I love that you said that because I think this is the whole, there is no destination, right? We all know that it's, it, it is a journey. And sometimes we feel like we are just like, we are on track. We're doing great. And sometimes it's like, what are we doing? And it's part of that journey. Honestly, I've loved this conversation. Where can people connect, follow, learn more about you? I'll make sure your TED Talk and your links are in the show notes. But where's the best place for people to learn more about you and the work that you do?
1: Um, a, a couple of places, I guess. One is my website, which is transforminglives.coach. Mm-hmm. Um, my LinkedIn profile, certainly. Um and those are probably the two best places I actually host um, and co-share hosting duties on three different podcasts. <sighs> um, probably the one that is, is most conversational, which this was that most talks about or, or, or helps people understand my perspective, is called Conversations. That's Q-O-N-V-E-R-S-A-T-I-O-N-S. Um, and it's hosted by uh, Quantivos, Q-U-A-N-T-U-V-O-S, which is Latin for choose to be your best. Hmm. Um, and it's an organization where I'm their uh, vice president for program development. That's a podcast that is always conversational. And and we really try to bring new perspectives to everything from the introvert difference um, to the, the role of the leader in uh, healthy conflict to it's it's very much organizational leadership um focus but leadership from frontline up to C-suite.
0: Amazing. Thank you so much for sharing that. Again, I I have loved this whole conversation with you, Brian. This has been fantastic. Um, I have one more question for you. And sure. it's a big one, but it's what lesson in life are you most grateful for?
1: It's a lesson that my son taught me. In my 60s, there is unconditional love.
0: That's beautiful. That's beautiful. I think that is, I I so appreciate that you shared all of your stories with us. And I just think it's so special how your son came into your life and how I, you can see visibly that, you know, you both benefited from that connection. And I think it's, I think it's beautiful because I always say, like, there are people out there that are willing to help us that we don't know yet, we haven't met yet. That, you know, when we allow ourselves to show up and be seen, even if it's vulnerable, incredible things can happen. And that's such a great example of it. Honestly, thank thank you. you so much for being here today. Thank you. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Own Your Choices, Own Your Life. If you love this episode, I invite you to tag me on social media with your takeaways or share it with a friend. Please, if you feel called, take 30 seconds to leave a five-star review, and I will be forever grateful. Until next time, remember, when you own your choices, you truly own your life.